I think a law degree is uh, juris, juris doctor or something like that. I don't know. Okay, I'm going to talk a lot about economics today, the economics of medicine. And when you think about it, what really shapes politics, what shapes history, what shapes most of society, it's economics. It's money. You've got to follow the money. I mean, what, what got all those people to go with Christopher Columbus to come over here looking for the new world, looking for a passageway to India? A lot of his people were looking for gold. I mean, Christopher Columbus was looking to proselytize Christianity, too, but he filled his ships with people looking for gold. You look at um, Jamestown, settlement Jamestown, it was financial, economic motivation. You look at indentured servitude, you look at slavery, look at the Industrial Revolution. All these things are economic forces. So I think it's important for us to take a look at what's happening in the economics of medicine and what's going on here that's causing all these political proposals we're seeing, the Massachusetts plan, and ultimately what I'm going to build up to is the push to get into cash practices. And this is what I hope to sell you on this afternoon, is for you to consider doing more cash in your practice or going entirely to cash in your practice, as many of the participants here have already done. It's not something that you learned in medical school. It's not something you're used to. Um, some people may tell you it's illegal, it's impossible, and so on. I'll have some time at the end of my talk to address questions about it, but I'm going to explain why I think cash is the future, and not only is it good for you and your practice, but it's what's going to save us. It's what's going to save the medical profession against these pressures of government takeover and socialism. Here are the statistics. All you need to know, really, are just four numbers, six numbers. In the year 2000, there were 39.8 million uninsured patients. Now, that's really a little bit of a misnomer to call these patients uninsured because many of them are self-insured. When we go uh, and get our car fixed, we go to a mechanic and we say, um, we got a noise in our engine, fix the thing, and we pay cash for that. That doesn't mean we're uninsured with respect to our car. That means we're self-paying. We're self-insured. Our car breaks down, we pay for it. We don't have insurance to cover that. We insure it ourselves, okay? But nevertheless, the term that's constantly used is uninsured. So I'm going to continue to use that term just because that's a convention. 39.8 million uninsured patients in the year 2000. The year 2001, 41.2 million Americans were uninsured. In the year 2002, 43.6 million Americans were uninsured. 2000 and, that was 2002, 2003, 45 million Americans were uninsured. 2004, 45.3 million were uninsured. 2005, 46.6 million were uninsured. Now, first of all, you may think that's just because our population is growing. No, it's not just because our population is growing. The percentage of Americans who are uninsured was rising during those same years. And what's happening is a lot of workers are dropping insurance. That's what's going on. Um, 
there's a growing percentage of American workers who are just dropping their insurance. There are a growing number of self-employed people who are dropping their insurance. Now, an extra one million Americans who are uninsured, if you figure that the premiums for insurance in this country varies from state to state, I'll tell you, in the Northeast, premiums are over $10,000 a year. Um, they may be a little better in some other states, but let's say premiums are $8,000 a year on average for a self-employed person. A million people, or one point, let's say 1.3 million people drop insurance, that's $10 billion that just left the insurance industry. $10 billion. That is a huge amount of money in premiums that just departed the insurance industry and is now cash in somebody's pocket to pay for medical services. So in one year, from 2004 to 2005, there was a 1.3 million increase in uninsured patients. That's an extra $10 billion in cash in people's pockets where they're going to pay for themselves to go and purchase medical care on an as-needed basis. That's tremendous. That's money out there for physicians like yourself to tap into. And by the way, it's not just the uninsured who are paying cash these days. A lot of people who have insurance are going outside their insurance to pay cash for medical services. We've got Todd Coulter here. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit, they set up free clinics down there. Federal government had free clinics for people to go and get medical care. So these patients could have gone and gotten it for free, just like insurance. Someone else is paying for it. Well, guess what? There were lines in those free clinics. And it wasn't the type of care they wanted, so they went to Dr. Coulter's practice, paid $40 an office visit or whatever, paid out of their own pocket to get care, even though they could get care somewhere else for free. The service is better at the cash clinics. This helps explain why the insurance industry is alarmed by this trend, and it's a trend. I mean, this is a trend going back to the year 2000, and there's no end to this trend. I mean, you look five years down the road, I mean, where are we going to be? There's going to be even more cash in people's pockets to pay for medical care out of pocket, outside of insurance, five years from now than there is now. That's quite clear where the trend is going. So the insurance industry is clamoring for states to mandate insurance, force people to buy insurance. And that's what's happened in Massachusetts. The insurance industry got together with the Democrats and everything and said, hey, let's pass a law that forces everybody to buy insurance. Only one state's done that so far. But that's their reaction to this. Now, we looked into it, and, and I did a white paper with Jane Orient on this, and it's not that easy for other states to adopt the Massachusetts plan. Uh, Governor... Schwarzenegger in California, he's proposed something similar. Let's force everybody to buy insurance. It's not that easy in California. There's a large uninsured population. There are a lot of immigrants in California. They're not going to be buying insurance. It's hard for other states to force people to buy insurance. It's not sure it's going to work in Massachusetts. That's far from clear. Um, it hasn't really kicked in yet. I think it kicks in July 1st, and it's not clear people in Massachusetts are really going to buy insurance the way that, that Romney wants them to. So we've got a huge population of cash-paying patients out there, um, cash in their pocket to come to your offices 
and purchase your medical care. Now, what are some of the advantages to going to cash? There are some obvious benefits that we don't need to spend a lot of time on, but let's just tick through them quickly. One is you get total freedom and control over your practice. You no longer have to worry about what the insurance company says you should be doing. Now, it's like the difference between working under the thumb of a boss, a supervisor who's on your back every day, and suddenly you're self-employed. You don't have a boss to report to. You don't have to. You got no one looking over your shoulder. You practice medicine the way you think is best. I mean, what a a tremendous um, uh, relief. What a tremendous amount of freedom. It's a great professional uh, release where finally you can practice medicine the way it should be practiced. There are other benefits. You get better results with your patients. Psychiatrists in particular tell me this, that if a psychiatrist has a patient who's paying for the counseling himself out of pocket, the results with that patient are much better than if someone else is paying for that counseling. The patient is more committed to the treatment. The patient is invested in the results rather than just simply going through the motions. It's the difference when you pay for something yourself and you feel that ownership compared to when someone else pays for it and you don't really care. It's between having your own car and renting a car. It's, it's a feeling of ownership over the medical treatment. And so the results are much better. Your staff is much happier. It's a completely different climate in your waiting room. I notice this as a, as a patient, excuse me. When I go into a medical office which is insurance-based, the, the staff, is, unruly, the staff is, um, is rude. The staff is irritated to see me. Uh, the staff is busy processing paperwork. Uh, it's an unpleasant experience. When I go into a medical practice which is based on cash, the staff lights up when they see you. There's another customer. There's another, I'm making a raise. You know, it's like you're walking into a mom and pop grocery store. They're happy to see you. Come on in. The difference is night and day. It really is as a patient. Here's another huge benefit of going to cash. There's no more fear about being charged with fraud and abuse. What's that worth? What's that worth? Priceless. Priceless. You know, there is no, you know, no nagging doubts when you go to sleep. There's no anxiety. There's no, you know, fear in opening the mail. There's no, no threats by anybody. Oh, I'm going to turn you in, you know? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. We had a call from a guy who got a threat from an office staff. Um, said, I'm going to turn you into HIPAA. You know, you fired my girlfriend. I'm going to turn you into HIPAA. I said, well, um, what kind of practice do you have? Well, I'm a cash practice. Ah, you're cash practice. Do you file any electronic claims with insurance companies? No. You're not under HIPAA. 
you're outside the jurisdiction of HIPAA. They can turn, you can be turned into HIPAA all somebody wants, and they can't do a thing to you. You're beyond their reach. HIPAA comes knocking on your door, you say, sorry, I'm not under HIPAA. Get out of here. This is nice. How many in this room are outside of HIPAA? Non-covered, look at that. Most doctors, if you go outside this room and you talk to the average doctor at the AMA or whatever, say, well, you, HIPAA, everybody's under HIPAA. You can't be outside HIPAA, that's illegal. It's illegal. No, it's not illegal. We sued. We got that exemption established that if you don't file any electronic claims, you're a non-covered entity, and you are outside the reach of the federal government. Now, (laughs) you know, that's nice to be outside the reach of the federal government because there's a saying in the Northeast that um, I got bad news and I got good news. The bad news is that you're being investigated by the state. The good news is that you're being investigated by the state and not the federal government. Because when you're outside the reach of the federal government, basically, you got nothing to worry about. The state, if the state's going to harass you for something, they're usually local people. Often they're reasonable. They don't have the budget. They're not trying to get their pictures in the newspaper. You can work things out if you get any problems with the state. The federal government is another story. You get HIPAA coming in on you for some violation, you're looking at at three years of total hell. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, and they're never going to admit they're wrong. They're never going to change the story. You're basically going to be like that border agent, you know, who shot somebody in the rear end, and now he's getting beaten up in jail over it, and he's in jail for 10 years. That's the way the federal government treats people. So getting out of HIPAA and getting outside the jurisdiction of the federal government is well worth doing. It's priceless, really. There's no pay for performance. You're in a cash practice. There's no, you know, there's no pay for performance. It's like your customer is your patient. You know, your patient pays you. That's the deal. You know, if you're good at it, you get more patients coming. There's no electronic medical records. You don't have to convert all your records to electronic format. Um, you know, go into some huge database. No, you can stay on paper. You can stay on paper. You can protect your patient's privacy. That means a lot to patients. That means a lot to patients. You know, how many patients, if you had come in and say, uh, doctor, um, you know, I really would prefer it if you put my personal medical information in some big national database. (laughs) You know, we don't hear that happen too often. Ah, your patients come in and you say, hey, this is going on this paper record. It's staying in my office. It's not going anywhere else. Okay, what you tell me, it's going down here. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Nobody gets to see this. No insurance company. Nobody else gets to see this. So those are the obvious benefits of going to cash. There are some less obvious benefits, and one that I just ran into just two weeks ago before a state medical board. I had a client who was getting harassed by a state medical board, and they were going to revoke his license. They really were. And he had a cash practice. And they were complaining about his documentation. Of course, they complain about everybody's documentation. I mean, once, once the medical board subpoenas records, they, they will complain about documentation no matter who it is. We only had one person. I've been doing this over 10 years. We only had one doctor who uh, 
when he sent his medical records to the medical board, they had trouble complaining about his documentation. That's because he was, he was so extremely meticulous. And I, I think he, he claimed it's because he used to work as a librarian. <laughs> he was so meticulous. But you know what? They still found a way to complain about his documentation. They said, Doctor, you have documented every single thing about this patient. You document too much. <laughs> so they always complain about documentation. And they were going to revoke this doctor's license. And they start to come up with these insurance arguments. The person who sat on the disciplinary committee, I think he had a background with an insurance company. And they've got sort of this insurance company mentality. And, of course, insurance companies don't like doctors who deal in cash. They can't report them because they don't have any relationship with them, but they don't like it. And, and so the insurance mentality doesn't like these cash doctors. And they say, they hit me with this right at the, you know, the disciplinary thing, right there. They say, this doctor was charging $40 an office visit. He had inadequate documentation, number one. And number two, patients were driving past other doctors to see this doctor. And he was giving them uh, some cough syrup. And this is improper. This is improper. The patients were driving long distance to see this doctor. And we're going to revoke your license. And it got to the closing argument. And, and on all these disciplinary committees, in most states, you have someone who's basically in bed with the insurance company or has a relationship with the insurance company. But then you have a layperson on the panel. Most medical boards now have lay people on the medical boards. And that's who you have to argue to. You've got to argue to the lay people. We've had success doing this. Because they're not in this insurance company mentality. They don't have this, this agenda. They don't have this, um, this philosophy of government control. They think like a patient. And I explained to the layperson, you know what? We drive past stores every day to get a cheaper price. Every day we drive past expensive stores to go to Walmart or some other place to get a cheaper price. There's nothing wrong with that. Driving past some doctors to get a cheaper price somewhere else. And then I said, this doctor was charging $40 an office visit. His patients were uninsured patients. That's all they can afford. That's all they can afford to pay for these things. You can have all the documentation in the world that you want if you want to pay $150 for an office visit, but the uninsured patients can't afford that. This doctor was treating uninsured patients at a fair price and giving them reasonable documentation for a $40 office visit. And I'm convinced that layperson went to bat for the doctor. You've got to leave the room, and then they deliberate and stuff. And I'm convinced that layperson went to bat and said, you allow this doctor to keep his license. He's serving uninsured patients out there. And that's a benefit to going to cash that I had never realized before. You are now serving. You are now offering a service to this huge uninsured population that's growing every year. And the lay people on these medical boards will defend you for doing that. They know it. They got friends who are uninsured. They know what it's like out there. And while the people who are tied to the insurance companies or want to do the bidding for the insurance companies, they're going to try to come down on you hard, you have now become very popular with the lay people on the panel. And by the way, a lot of these uninsured patients are minorities. 
A lot of them are immigrants. And these medical boards, they all have minorities on the medical board. And you make the pitch. You say, listen, I'm out there treating them. These other doctors who are in insurance, they're not treating these uninsured patients. It's too expensive. I'm treating them. You allow me to keep my license. You allow me to keep doing what I'm doing. And they did in this case. So that's a nice benefit of going to cash that's maybe not so obvious. Another benefit that's not so obvious is if you have a patient paying for himself, he's much less likely to sue you for malpractice. Um, I haven't seen any studies of this, but I'm convinced it's true based on watching this for 10 years. patient who pays out of pocket for the, the medical service has a different mentality, has a free enterprise outlook, and they don't have the entitlement mentality of the people in insurance. And you're less likely to expose yourself to malpractice if you take cash. In fact, I haven't heard of any cases where doctors have been sued for malpractice by a cash-paying patient. They understand. They pay cash. You give them the service. You know, it's like Federal Express. You pay cash. They promise it by 10 a.m. the next morning. It doesn't always get there by 10 a.m., but, you know, you can work it out. If there's a problem, you can, one thing is you can give them their money back. They come complain, okay, I'm sorry, I'll give you your money back. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Your money back. But you get into that insurance system where they're not paying cash and people are looking for, um, to get some sort of entitlement, you're going to get more malpractice cases. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the criminalization of medicine. This has been a big problem. The federal government has decided that doctors are an easy target and that doctors are much easier to prosecute than terrorists, real drug dealers, organized crime, all the other things that they are supposed to be prosecuting with their big budgets. You know, they go to Congress and they say, give us more money next year because we've got to prosecute these terrorists, blah, 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 blah. But then what they do is they take that money and they go after easier targets, which is doctors. And doctors are easier targets because doctors don't fight back. Um, it's easy to get their medical staff to turn on the doctor. It's easy to entrap doctors with the undercover visits. And that's something that um, you should be sensitive to. Almost every prosecution of a doctor involves a visit by someone working undercover. They will try to get the doctor on tape before they prosecute the doctor. I've seen that in virtually every single case. Patients will come in posing as patients, and they're actually wearing a wire underneath their clothes, and... Um, they will try to entrap the doctor and get him to do something that will then show up on the uh, tapes and will be used against the doctor in prosecutions. And these tapes in courtrooms, I've heard them used in courtrooms, it's, it has a devastating effect, these tapes. And that's why prosecutors like them so much. The jury doesn't even listen to what's said on the tapes. They go, the judge says, okay, now we're going to hear from the tapes and everyone gets quiet, and the jury wakes up, and they play these tapes, and it comes through these loudspeakers in these uh, high-tech courtrooms now. And the jury, they don't even follow what's said. But they say, oh, they had that doctor on tape. They recognize his voice. They recognize his voice on tape. And they hear it through the loudspeakers, and they just shake their head. Ah. 
guy must have been guilty, must have been guilty. They got him there on tape. And that's the devastating effect of these tapes. And as I say, you may not say anything incriminating on the tapes, but there it is. And we had, uh, we had one case where the patients came in and they wired themselves and they went to see the doctor and, and the big area where this is done is in pain management now, where they're trying to get doctors for prescribing OxyContin, but it's not just OxyContin. It's also OxyContin. Um, it's also uh, Vicodin. Um, and they've even started to prosecute for, for things, Category 5 things, like cough syrup. Um, and in this particular case, the patients came in and they were wired, and they would move. When they wear these wires across them, they move kind of funny because it creates a lot of static on the, uh, on the wires. And so they're, they're moving in kind of a stiff manner, and they'll sort, of, they'll sort of walk slowly. When they get up, they get kind of, you know, it's kind of stiff. And the doctor thought that was because they were in pain. And he just assumed they were in pain. And, of course, they try to entrap the doctor. They'll come up with stories like, oh, yeah, I have a job with a moving company. And I have back pain and so on. And the doctor went through the full examination with these patients leg stress testing and everything else, and did not, prescribe, did not prescribe as much as the patient wanted, and finally cut the patient off after like three visits, terminated the patient, but they still went after the doctor and still prosecuted the doctor. Because once a prosecution gets started, they, they never reverse. The government never admits it's wrong. They'll, they'll just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And what you want to do is you want to learn to recognize the patient, the patient who's a drug addict, you want to learn to recognize, but you also want to learn to recognize the patient who's an entrapment. And recognize them by how that they're just pushing a little too hard for things, pushing a little too hard for the pills. They're asking you too many questions. The, they will try to, they'll ask you to meet them after hours. They'll ask you to give them something for their friends. They'll, sometimes they'll come in with a friend themselves. They'll have a story that's just, just doesn't quite add up. You'll say, like, how did you come here? They'll say, well, I'm from out of town. And, and they, will, they will spin a story and learn to recognize the story that is not uh, factual, that's fiction. It could either be a real drug addict or it could be an entrapment. Learn to recognize that. And if there's any doubt, send the patient away. Send the patient away. Tell the patient to come back later. Or refer the patient out to someone else who specializes in in pain management. Now, what's going on is you get these bigger clinics that specialize in pain management, these prescriptions, and they have some protection against the prosecution. There's protection in numbers because prosecutors like to go after the smaller practitioners who don't have all the colleagues and don't have the big operation, don't have the money to fight a legal defense. So some doctors are just simply referring all the pain cases out to a big clinic where they can, um, they can defend themselves if there's a prosecution. But if you do prescribe uh, pain medication, be careful. Be careful and develop, develop an ear uh, so that you don't trust every single patient. Develop a, a certain skepticism towards what the patient's telling you. And if the patient doesn't have any medical records, if the patient's not referred to you by someone you know and trust, be skeptical. Ask the patient more questions. We have an APPS member who is a psychiatrist, 
and, and who's, who's uh, just very good at being skeptical. He's skeptical of everything. Um, and he uh, was in a big case in New York City about a, um, it was a vicious murder that was on all the news, and he was a psychiatrist who went in and did the examination on the criminal defendant. And the criminal defendant came with a story that he was, he was crazy, and that's why he murdered, um, he murdered this person. And um, this uh, APPS member said, okay, well, let me, let me ask you a few questions. Um, you say you were hearing voices and, and that you're, you're going crazy. and you know, So you're hearing these voices, and that's what drove you to do the murder. Well, um, was it a male voice or a female voice that you were hearing? And would ask a series of questions about these voices and just keep asking more and more questions about this guy's voices until finally his complete story about hearing voices just completely unraveled. And they read... They read the uh, criminal defendant's own statements at trial, and he was convicted and so on. It's the same thing. When you get a patient who, who wants pain medication, start to ask that patient a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Okay, you work for a moving company. How long do you work there? What's your job exactly? Um, when do you have trouble on the job? What are your hours? Just ask a whole series of questions. And if you still have doubt, then say, okay, go into the uh, examining room and take off all your clothes. <laughs> yeah, question. Are, are these agents coming in confidential informants? Well, both. We have seen both. We have seen both agents come in undercover, and we have seen existing patients come in. Now, here's the problem with drug addicts. If you have a drug addict in your, in your practice, um, that drug addict is a huge risk for entering into a plea bargain with the government and making up a story about you. Drug addicts do this all the time. And the way this game works is the prosecutor will go to the drug addict and say, okay, we're going to lock you up for 10 years in jail, Unless you have some testimony against this doctor, and, and if you can cooperate in this, and then we'll see. Okay? It's not an express deal, but all these drug addicts know how this game is played. And if they provide testimony against the doctor, then they are convinced, and they will receive a lighter prison sentence or no prison time at all for making up the story. And we've got a tragic case come out of Pittsburgh where four drug addicts who all knew each other in a doctor's practice, made up a story that they were giving the doctor sex in exchange for pain medication. They all knew each other. They all got uh, greatly reduced prison time for their drug addiction, their drug dealing, and the doctor got convicted based on this testimony, and it was all a complete lie. And we know it was a lie because during the trial, one of the drug addicts, wrote a whole series of letters to her boyfriend describing how it was a lie and describing how she was doing this to get out of jail herself and how she, was, she had some regrets about doing it, but she said, look, I want to get out of here. This is what I have to do. This is what I'm doing. And those letters came out after trial, and the doctor went into court and said, Judge, see, we told you it was a lie during trial. Now we got the letters to prove it was a lie, so overturn the conviction. You know what the judge did? He said, no. No, I'm not going to overturn the conviction. In fact, 
judge used against the defendant the fact that he had complained it was a lie at trial. He said, you already told the jury it was a lie, and they didn't believe you. Well, yeah, that's true, but now I have the letters to prove it, and the jury didn't see these letters. Now, we're not changing our mind. Government never, the federal government never changes their mind. The federal government never admits it was wrong. They never turn. They haven't changed their mind about these Border Patrol agents we hear about in the news all the time. They never reverse course. Once they set their eyes on something, once they convict somebody, you're not going to get a new trial. It doesn't matter what comes out after trial. It doesn't happen. Going to cash is your best defense against the criminalization of medicine. It completely insulates you against the fraud and abuse allegations. You cannot be charged with billing fraud when the patient pays cash, when the patient pays you directly. It completely insulates you against insurance companies turning you into the medical board. Huge problem. We've seen a number of tragic cases of this. Or an insurance company will go to a medical board and say, get rid of this doctor. And often it happens when there's a huge backlog of receivables um, that are owed by that insurance company doctor. Because get this, the law in many states is that if an insurance company can get a doctor's license revoked, then by law the insurance company doesn't have to pay any of its past obligations to the doctor. Can you believe that? And we have seen that. Insurance company be slow on paying. There'll be a backlog, get up to like a half a million dollars. Insurance company will then go to the board, try to get that doctor's license revoked, and then they don't have to pay their past due obligations to the doctor. I mean, that's a no-brainer. They can get out of a half a million dollars, a million dollars, whatever it is. And these medical boards are so tight with these insurance companies. I mean, you talk about organized crime. (laughs) Going to cash does not insulate you completely against the charges for pain medication. And this is, this is the hot area right now where these prosecutors are all over this. And we were in the big case of um, Billy Hurwitz. Uh, we've been in a lot of these cases. And we, we filed an amicus brief in the appeal of this doctor who was sentenced 25 years in jail for writing pain prescriptions because what the government claims is say he's not really a doctor, he's a drug dealer. He's writing pain prescriptions. He's doing examinations. But they say, no, no, he's really a drug dealer. And then they prosecute him under the drug laws, which have these huge penalties. The law they prosecuted this doctor under was a 20-year minimum sentence if he gets convicted. And the judge piled on on top of that. He said, that's not even enough. I'm giving you 25 years. You start to get a lot of envy. Um, You start to get a lot of envy from the legal profession, honestly against the medical profession. You see it in some judges. They get envious of smart doctors. They get envious of doctors who stand up to the legal system. Realize now that 97% of criminal defendants in federal court plead guilty to something. They don't go to trial. They plead guilty before trial. And when someone stands up to the, the legal system and says, I'm not pleading guilty, I didn't do anything wrong, and they go to trial, the judge is often furious with them. He's wasting their time. 
the defendant is wasting the judge's time by going to trial, by exercising his rights. And if the defendant testifies his own defense and loses, he gets a greater sentence for testifying on behalf of himself. His, his prison time gets bumped up for that. So it's, the system badly needs reform at this point. And the most vulnerable right now are the doctors who write these pain medications. And um, going to cash doesn't really protect you from that. Um, you have to do other things to protect yourself against prosecution for pain medication. And the number one thing is just be skeptical about those patients and watch out for the phony patients. Watch out for the drug addicts. If you have drug addicts in your practice, be very careful. Now, some people say, well, you know, drug addicts, they deserve medical care too. And they do. Just be very careful with them. Use chaperones, for example. Document stuff. Um, don't, uh, don't give them all the medication they're necessarily requesting. And watch out for the undercover people. Very tricky. Now, <laughs> in some cases, we even have doctors who, who have a device in their office that picks up uh, radio frequency transmissions. And if someone's wearing a wire in their office, this thing will beep. They got something on their shelf, and we, you know, those are available. <laughs> if you're interested in that, um, talk to us afterwards. And uh, this doctor, I know one doctor, she swears by it. I got that thing all the time. And it's uh, cell phones have triggered something. I know it's working. Someone's got a cell phone or something. Thing will start beeping. I know it's working. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, I don't, you know. Um, you know, it's a way to combat people who are lying to you, um, people who are trying to entrap you. In another case, these people were so, they were so out to get this doctor that after they went in with the wire and after they entrapped him in various ways, and one trick they would do is they, is they would like grimace. They would do things that would not show up on the tape to indicate that they were in pain. So they're like grimacing and stuff, but that doesn't show up on the wire. And meanwhile, they're, they're getting the doctor to give them pain medication while the wire seems to suggest that there wasn't any pain. So they get very clever at this. However, they left the wire on. And when they got out to the parking lot, they were giving each other high fives. Ah, we got the doctor that time. We really got him, but the wire was still on. So all that got tape recorded. <laughs> okay, in conclusion, though, Except for the pain medication, which is sort of a separate set of problems, going to cash has huge benefits. And not only does it have huge benefits, but it's a way to, to um, combat this takeover of medicine that we're seeing. It's a way to combat the socialization of medicine. Because the more we have doing cash, the harder it's going to be for the government to take in, to step in, and take that over. It becomes too expensive for the government to assume the obligations of all those cash transactions. It becomes too difficult for them. And we're in a little bit of a race between cash practices and government control. And if we can expand the cash practices more, then Hillary and the Massachusetts plan and all these other things will have a much more difficult time taking over medicine. I'll take some questions. Yes. Well, we have specialists who've gone all cash, too, and you'll hear from some of them later today. Um, the hospital fees can still get paid by Medicare Part A, for example. 
So if you have a patient in Medicare, they can still get reimbursed under Medicare Part A for the hospital fees. That doesn't affect the ability of the doctor to go cash on his services. So I would keep, keep those two concepts separate, and you can have a cash practice without affecting the ability of patients to get reimbursed on the hospital charges. And also, in many states, they're starting to pass laws that, that are forcing hospitals to come down on their charges on the hospital um, part of it for people who are paying cash. Yes? Well, there are also exceptions for emergency care. So you can have a cash practice where you've opted out of Medicare, but if it's an emergency care situation under EMTALA, you can still bill the government for that. So emergency situations is another sort of separate issue where you can, you can get reimbursed, you can bill Medicare and so on, but have a cash practice for all the non-emergency situations. Yes? Well, they have said, the federal government has said that it's okay for you to fax information. Um, the fact that someone else is receiving that in a computer rather than a paper fax, I don't think that should change that. From your perspective, you're just sending that something out on paper. What they do with it is their business. Um, you're not submitting anything having to do with insurance claims. Um, as you said, you're allowed to receive information electronically without triggering HIPAA. So you're right to be concerned about this, but it seems to me you're still okay. And we're going to continue to fight it. You know, when we advise people to opt out of HIPAA, uh, this is going back now five years, there were many people who said, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to do that. They're going to push you in. They're going to force you in. And they do try to force us in, but here we are five years later, and half this room's not in HIPAA, and we're going to continue to stay outside of HIPAA. There are some constitutional obstacles to the government forcing everybody under the federal system. We live in a, a, a system of federalism where the federal government does not have power, is not supposed to have power over purely local issues. So there are some structural obstacles to the government completely taking over all aspects of medical practice. And so we're going to preserve our ability to be a country doctor and stay out. Yeah, Shirley. What I would recommend is that you opt out of Medicare. And you can opt out of Medicare using an employer identification number now. And it's really for your protection. In case you treat a Medicare patient and you charge cash and that Medicare patient submits a claim, you want to be on record as having been opted out, and then they won't even bother you. And by the way, I learned something just recently, that the private contracts that you have with patients, if you've opted out of Medicare, um, the government cannot get, cannot see your private contracts with patients unless the patient first consents to the federal government seeing those private contracts. And that's a nice little, uh, that's a nice little thing to know. So when they come, someone asks you for your private contacts with your patient, you say, well, excuse me, has the patient said you can see them? Patient doesn't consent to that, they don't get to see them. No. No, you're not. If you opt out, there is no limit to what you can charge. Okay, one last question. Yes. Um, yes, it does. Because when you opt out, you don't take federal money, so that puts you outside a lot, a lot of the other federal laws, too. And I believe the Stark laws are tied to receiving Medicare funding. And so I believe if you've opted out of Medicare, I believe that puts you outside of some of the Stark laws. Is that a question about this particular point, sir? Okay, file on the Stark laws. 
Workers' comp is different. When you opt out of Medicare, you have not opted out of workers' comp. So it's a different set of issues. And It's not a federal employee position, but there will be a new set of regulations that we have to look at. I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. Okay, I think we better stop at this point. I'll be around afterwards.